coming up on the Clevolution Podcast. At no fault of our own are we the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land. This is the Clevolution. A quick dose of disruptive dialogue about modern day revolutionaries. Clev Mesador, you're on. Writer Simon Moya Smith is both native and Chicano. He is fighting the status quo to make sure his community is not, not excluded from the mainstream debate about the most pressing issues of our time. Thank you for joining the Clevolution podcast, Simon. I'm thrilled to have you on. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by discussing the movement, the revolution, this cause that you're advancing. The plight of natives is central to the current social justice debate that's happening in the U.S. Do you think that is lost in the mainstream? I don't think it's it's getting lost. I think it's never been recognized. I mean, mm. at least not in the main not in the mainstream discussion of. I mean, look how people celebrate Thanksgiving without giving a second thought to the brutality um, associated in that narrative. Mm. Um, I think the problem is you. You're right. There's a whole bunch of marginalized groups. The, dis- the difference is, this is our ancestral land. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to talk about other groups from continents, other places, from other places, versus like, here's the group of people in their ancestral land, and if, they, if we recognize their plight, then we have to recognize what this country is capable of doing, has done, and will continue to do to people of color. And to address the Native American narrative is something that a lot of community, not just the white community, but the black community, Latino community, LGBTQ, because everybody participate, you know, you mm-hmm. again, look at Thanksgiving, look at uh, people who dress up as Native Americans on Halloween, uh, look at all the fans of, of different, you know, uh, backgrounds who go to Washington football team games or mm-hmm. Cleveland Indians games or Chiefs games. Um, you know, I mean, I've had unique experiences with African Americans, for example, a black guy in red face. Uh, with a headdress, white splained redskins to me. And you think that would just be something coming from the white community, but no. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. in this country, on some level or another, have been um, inculcated and conditioned to ignore the plight of indigenous people. And it's really difficult for them to do that because then you have to recognize your own privilege. Mm-hmm. That your house, that, you know, like, oh, my family's been in this house for three generations. Well, you know, unfortunately, your family is there only as a result of aggressive Indian removal. Unless you're native, I don't care who you are, you are a direct beneficiary of the aggressive removal of native peoples because no native group, I mean, excuse me, especially mine, said, here, yeah, take our land, build whatever you want on it, go ahead and you know, desecrate our, our area and then uh, desecrate our sacred sites and our, 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 um, our families, let's say, plots like they did up at Standing Rock. So mm-hmm. I think people have a very difficult time addressing those issues just because in many ways it's still very new to them and they have been conditioned to not see it. Racism in America. It's a cancer mm-hmm. in America. And mm-hmm. we, ju- we just had an incident where we see this, this, this pervasiveness across cultures, right? At Colorado State where you had this woman call the cops on two Native teens just because mm-hmm. she was uncomfortable. And you've had this case of the Starbucks recently and Waffle House. The racism dialogue isn't being had either, right? No, I think that the, again, well, when it, especially when it comes to natives, I think that's the problem is that people, 
you know, it's it's interesting when you look at it. First, they're frightening us. Second, they want to they claim to be us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like I don't know how many people have ever come up to I'm, across the board. I'm pretty sure there isn't one native that's that's living today who hasn't been approached and somebody said they were a quarter Cherokee or their great great grandma was a Cherokee <laughs> princess or you know. So it's weird when you look at it. I mean, it's 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 an anomaly. And it's it's and it's extremely hypocritical for these people to like, you know, and I'm not saying this this person who called the cops on these two boys claims to be native. It's just interesting that people want to be associated with indigenous uh, history in the United States. But then we're excluded from these conversations. And then especially with these two young boys, Mm -hmm. she said that she thought they were Mexican. Right. And it's like, okay, but Mexican is indigenous. Yes. People are missing that part. It's like we did not accept those borders. Those borders were enforced. In my language, in the uh, Oglala Lakota language, we even have a, a word for uh, what it would be con- today, uh, considered today Mexican indigenous. And that's spiola. And that's not something that's new. No, we used to trade. We, you know, we go back and forth trading with the southern indigenous people. So regardless if she thought they were Mexicans or she thought they were native or whatever, these were indigenous kids that just wanted to attend their dream school. And they were, again, they faced the same discrimination so many people of color do face. What the, Essentially, what their crime was is that they, were, they weren't white and they were quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, and they really just, make, you know, there is that white fragility. And then there's that privilege like, oh, here's two boys of color. Um, they're making me uncomfortable. I'm going to call the cops. And... Again, it goes to show how excluded natives are in this discussion of uh, racism against natives. I would encourage people to go look at it was opening day with the Cleveland Indians Mm -hmm. and people for whooping, telling them to go back to the the reservation. They should go bead. It's like the racism is is prevalent in, in, in the United States against natives. What does justice begin to look like? What's what are some of the steps we should be taking? Um, I think that if people begin to at least include natives in the discussion, I mean, we do it on our own, right? There's black Twitter, but there's also native Twitter. And this is where people can um, be allies and understand that, you know, even if you are a quarter Cherokee, there's a difference between claiming to be native and participating in your community, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why we had an issue with, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren. You know, it's like she claims to be Native American, but then she doesn't say anything at all about, you know, well, up until about a couple uh, weeks ago or a couple months ago now, didn't say anything about Standing Rock when Standing mm-hmm. Rock was happening. Police brutality in Indian country, natives per capita are more likely to die at the hands of police than any other demographic, but that's because we have such a small population and so many incidents of police brutality. And these aren't widely discussed. And I think if people start to include indigenous people mm-hmm. in these discussions of, of systemic oppression and uh, racism, especially in policing, then I think we, we, you know, people will have a shift. People will go like, wow, you know, I never linked the two between the discrimination of natives and how they're portrayed in media. And so, hey, maybe it does matter that we're making them look like savages at hostels on mm-hmm. TV and in sports, and this is how we approach them. People just recognize us as contemporary, uh, conscientious objectors that we're, you know, we live on the reservation, but we also live off the reservation. More than 70% of natives now live in big cities. We have long hair, we're short, we have short hair. Christian, traditional, mm-hmm. all across, you know, full blood, mixed blood, doesn't matter. We're here, and the point is we survived the United States. We're the survivors of the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. We survived, you know, um, so many different attempts to annihilate us. For example, Abraham Lincoln, not very liked in the native community because 
he holds the record for hanging the most Indians at once. And that really? was just a couple weeks before a couple weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation. And so every year there's a Dakota 38 ride where they remember the indigenous people who died at the the pen of somebody like Abraham Lincoln when these indigenous people were just fighting for their animal rights. These are the stories that are part of the narrative, the American narrative that goes swept under the rug because mm -hmm. it makes people uncomfortable. Culture plays a big role in sh shaping a person's identity. You've mentioned that you are Chicano as well as Oglala Lakota, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oglala Lakota, yeah. Lakota. Uh, so how, how has that identity duality impacted you know, your, your quest for justice? Um, you know, it started for me as a kid, you know, I, I was, when I was really, really young, second, third grade, I used to get sent home on Columbus day because, you know, I, I, they would think I was a muckraker, but I wouldn't eat any Nina Pinta or Santa Maria cupcakes. And, you know, I wouldn't celebrate a man that I know would, uh, you know, brutalize indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the narrative that we were raised, just like I said, with Abraham Lincoln, I knew about Abraham Lincoln early on as a kid. And so I wasn't always comfortable with all these celebrations of Abraham Lincoln, knowing what he did to our people, the Dakota. And um, mine started really early on. And then when I went to middle school in Los Angeles, there uh, I unfortunately attended a school in Downey, California, that mascot were the Indians, the Griffiths Middle School Indians. And so mm -hmm. our vice principal would begin the uh, morning announcements with good morning, Injuns and Injunettes, which is extremely derogatory. Yes. Uh, it's extremely offensive. And you wouldn't you would never call a native. Um, that word to to our faces, especially and even the R word, the name of the Washington football team. Mm -hmm. um, so I got into I didn't I didn't plan on being a journalist. Um, I was, of course, on, you know, in college on the streets protesting Columbus Day, things like that. And, you know, uh, sports mascots. And then when I graduated, I became a speechwriter for a state senator in uh, Colorado who was trying to repeal Columbus Day. And like didn't happen, unfortunately. But right after that, I, I realized that one of the most powerful things we could do is uh, shape the narrative and uh -huh. use language, you know, use language, use these platforms. And so I was hired by a newspaper, I think, like a month after the legislature. And I've been a reporter ever since. But um, as an as a native reporter, it's a lot harder for me to get stories out on natives, um, because as it was explained to me when I used to write at NBC News, um, you know, you're look. You know, there's NBC uh, Latino, NBC Asian. I think there's NBC Out. I think mm -hmm. there uh, is it, and then there's one for the African American community. BLK, yeah, yeah, BLK. But there's not one for natives. And I said, why? And they said, well, you know, there's not enough of you essentially. And you know, that's a, it's like, wow. So this is a numbers game, and at no fault of our own, are we the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land? And so just trying to get stories out into the mainstream on native issues or bringing a native lens to yeah. a popular topic is extremely difficult because you do have people in the newsroom who claim to be native American. They're a quarter Cherokee, but then they're not pitching stories because they're not involved. And yeah. you know, when you walk in the room and make them, you make them uncomfortable because you, now you're questioning their narrative. Just like somebody who would say, yeah, I'm a Vietnam veteran. And then you walk in and an actual Vietnam veteran comes in and the person that was maybe in the military or, Maybe not, but didn't go to Vietnam, clam up. And that's how you, that, that's what they do. Natives walk into these spaces where people claim to be native and then they clam up and then you look at them and go, well, if it's a newsroom, why aren't you pitching the stories? Because it's imperative that you do and they don't because some, again, you got a lot of wannabes out there that are ethnically bankrupt yeah. and just try to take these spaces. It's 
that's hard language for people to, you know, the word extermination, right? People mm -hmm. use that language when they're talking about cockroaches. And then to have to, you know, push back on their narrative, their comfortable narrative, you know, it makes people uncomfortable. But that's, I think, our job as conscientious objectors of people of color is to make them uncomfortable because you remember it that way. Yes. You know, and it's not our, you know, and, and, and you have to come at it sometimes. I, I even I have to do it. I have to come at it with a, a level of diplomacy. And so, for example, on Thanksgiving this last year, I was leading a protest of the Washington football team playing on Thanksgiving. You know, so here's a, here's a team name that means proof of Indian kill. Mm -hmm. And then on a holiday that is uh, based in a massacre of indigenous people. And so, you know, I was standing before another, Af or excuse me, an African-American uh, father, grandfather. And, you know, I was like, hi, you know, from one person of color to another person of color, I'm just gonna tell you why this is offensive to me. And then he proceeded to ask me, he goes, you know, I've got a Hopi friend who says he doesn't have a problem with it. And now that, oh my would, God. that would typically anger me. And, it, and you know, deep down it hurts. Because yes. here's an African-American male, you know, basically, again, white-splaining a little bit uh -huh. to me. And I was, in my head, I was like, wow, that would kind of suck if it were the other way around. What if I was here and the team was an African yeah. or African-American male? And I say, hey, I got a black friend that has no problem with it. Uh -huh. you know? But I realized there might have been a generational disconnect. And so diplomatically, I explained to him that, that it doesn't matter. If you have a Native American friend who doesn't have doesn't take offense to a slur, a slur is a slur yes. by definition, and that's even if there was a Native, even if he had a Native friend who was offended, wasn't offended by it, it doesn't change the definition. Exactly. Right, and so it does take a level of diplomacy for all of us as as people of color, because some people just don't know, and I think that once we provide them in the information, once we provide them that information, and they they want to continue to, you know, say white splain us or deny it, then that changes it, right? You're either going to get humble acceptance or aggressive denial, and if you get a humble acceptance, boom, you maybe wouldn't have got that if you came at them, you know, piss and vinegar. Yeah. But if you go there di diplomatically and then they push back, then you're like, all right, now we can go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. So, but you have to have a superpower that keeps you going. I don't know if it's a superpower, but I think what, what shaped me to be prepared to do this is um, I, I had, you know, when I was a kid, I had bullies and they weren't always youths. Some of them were adults because mm -hmm. if you come to an adult, you know, when you're a kid and you're trying to tell an adult, Hey, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, he would order that, um, you hang 12 native Americans at a time and one more for Jesus Christ. And they'd be like, no, that's not true. So growing up, having adults, having professors, having teachers, having friends, parents, and having even other young peers you know, bully you essentially because you keep coming with these realities um, for indigenous peoples and, you know, non-myth-made facts of, of history, you you deal with a lot of that ag aggression. Mm -hmm. And I think that now I'm 34. Um, I, that's a lot of years, many decades of, of professors and teachers and friends and parents or pseudo-friends, I guess, at that point, that would, you know, push back on you even though they know that you're, you're speaking the truth. Yeah. You, you just become the party pooper or the student trying to teach the teacher. I, I debated a professor at Columbia University who just, you know, who totally shut down on me when she was just talking about humans in, in a basic form. I'm like, I'm sorry. My people weren't trying to convert Cherokees to Lakota. Mm -hmm. My people, you know, we weren't trying to monopolize yeah. corn. You're using, you're using a Western white perspective to talk about all people and I disagree and so when I do that and I even you know 
when I was a kid and then when I was in college, you do find people that will 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 push back and that's fine, but some of them do become aggressive bullies. And I guess my superpower would be tough skin, I guess, tougher skin than than most because of that. And um, but also patience. There are many, many times I want to fly off, you know, the handle. I'm tired of it. But then you have to realize, you know, this person may take that from you and you don't want to perpetuate the stereotype of yeah. just the angry Indian all the time. What's your inspiration? Um, I guess, you know, I know it sounds really cheesy, but first and foremost, my mom, she's the one that uh, motivated me to talk back, mm. um, you know, which I think <laughs> didn't serve in her best interest all the time, <laughs> but she just wanted to make sure that, you know, there, there's so much, uh, there's so many lies, so, so much, so many myths out there. And, you know, they tried to force feed that down your, your throat. And my mom being Chicana, and Chicana, you know, in East L.A. is a very political term, but it's also a community, and it ties back to Cesar Chavez and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Brown Rights Movement. Um, and she always wanted me to know. She goes, look, you're Oglala Lakota, you're Chicano. That means you're indigenous. You're indigenous north of the border, you're indigenous south of the border. And you're going to yes. face you're going to face difficulties on, you know, no matter how they, they see you. But to be indigenous is a, is a, you know, it's a, affirmation of our defiance our resilience that we're still here and to justify you know the united states there's going to be a lot of of you know bullshit and my mother you know she taught me early on the importance of questioning what i read um talking back if i believe i need to talk back Mm -hmm. and um narrative and story and how to communicate you know who we are as indigenous people, but also just to tell the stories um, as they happen. So it would first and foremost be my mom. And then in a way, and I know it's kind of negative, but my dad, my dad took off really young. So what I got from him and all, you know, some of the men that my mom married was who not to be, what Mm. not to be, what not to be like. So instead of seeing them as an excuse to do something bad, be bad, justify it. No, I just like, okay, don't do that. Okay, don't do that. All right, watching this guy, don't do that. So just learning who not to be also has helped me to be a better person, especially with the absence of a father, but a very strong indigenous mother. You got a book deal, which is exciting. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. This title, Your your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. What can we expect? (laughs) It'll come out in the fall, uh, 2018, and uh, yeah, your spirit animal is a jackass. The title came from again, you know, I, I spent a lot of time out on the road in different cities, talking to people at restaurants, uh, coffee shops, pubs, uh, events, and you know, there was a couple instances where people just they wanted me to give them their their spirit animal, and I was like, mm. wow, and, you know. And then, uh, you know, just one day, I just told this one guy, I said, okay, it's a jackass, and you know, and it was like, oh, okay, well. Now I know what my book's going to be titled. So. Um, yeah, there, there's a couple of things. So I actually start off the book. Um, one, of the, one of the sections that, are, that, that it begins with is me sitting at the back of a pub writing theories on napkins. And this guy, this white guy comes over and he invites himself to sit down. And, you know, I can be a little um, sassy, I guess. So <laughs> the guy asked me what I was writing and I told him I was writing theories. And then he was like, oh, tell me one of your theories. And I said, well, if we can convince all white people that if their house is haunted, maybe we'll get a lot of our land back because that's the only way they voluntarily leave their homes. <laughs> and 
it's it's funny, but it's actually kind of accurate when you yeah. watch all these shows, these ghost shows. And I love watching these ghost shows. Like one of my little things is like the supernatural. I'm really fascinated by this stuff. So I I told him, I said, haven't you seen Amityville? Don't you watch any of these ghost reality shows? It's the only way white people to get their shit and go. And I said, if we can convince them, then boom, we got us a lot of land back. And he was like, you know, immediately he just like sat back in his chair and this white guy and he looked at me kind of like, oh, he's one of them. And so a lot of those stories go into the book. And also, so does the Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass uh, story. I'm sure people listening want to learn more about what you're doing. They want to stay up to date on the, the progress that you're making. What's the best way they stay in touch? Um, they can reach me. Uh, you know, I, I try to stay active on, on Twitter. You okay. know, my Instagram, my, my Instagram is more of just kind of like, you know, you know, dancing around and, uh, you know, <laughs> getting stories. But Twitter, uh, people can find me, reach me. I have my email up there if they, they want to know. Every time I have a story come out, it'll, you know, I'll post it there. So I have a story on the two Native kids that were um, discriminated against at CSU. Um, I'll have a story about that on NBC News this week. So people just follow me that way. Thank you for listening to the Clevolution podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at the Clevolution. Stay tuned for another lively episode with host Clev Mesador.